Hey, what's up? This is Paula. I am currently in Austin, Texas. I'm actually recording this from the Austin Convention Center. So if you hear a bunch of noise in the background, that's uh, that's because I'm in a convention center and I'm hosting and emceeing a big conference for people who create podcasts and other kind of digital media around personal finance. And speaking of personal finance, in today's podcast episode, you are going to be listening to an interview that originally aired in June 2018 with a real estate investor by the name of Rich Carey. Now, if you have ever had the thought that you live in an expensive area and there are no good rental properties anywhere close to you because you live in a high cost of living area, well, guess what? If you want to talk long distance investing, no one that I've ever met has done it better than Rich. This guy bought 20 single family homes totally free and clear, completely debt-free, and he bought the majority of them while he was stationed in Germany with the Air Force. And then the rest of them, the ones he didn't buy from Germany, he bought from South Korea. So you want to talk long-distance investing? You want to talk debt-free real estate investing? Rich Carey is the guy for that. This interview originally aired June 2018. I am so proud and happy to run it for you again today. Catch you at the end of the interview. Talk to you then. anything but not everything. Every decision that you make is a trade-off against something else, and that's true not just for your money, but also your time, your focus, your energy, your attention, anything in your life that's a scarce or limited resource. And so the questions become twofold. Number one, what matters most? And number two, how do you align your daily behaviors to reflect that? Answering these two questions is a lifetime practice, and that is what this podcast is here to explore. My name is Paula Pant. I'm the host of the Afford Anything podcast and the founder of affordanything.com. And today we have a real estate focused episode. Now, the vast majority of our episodes are not about real estate investing. So if that's not your jam, don't listen to this one. Search through our archives. We've got a ton of great episodes about other topics, everything from starting businesses to investing in the stock market. Check out any of those. If you are into real estate investing, you're probably going to really like this one because joining me is a guy by the name of Rich Carey, who, and I am not making this up, this is totally true, he owns 20 houses, all completely free and clear, totally debt-free, and he bought all of those while serving overseas in the military. So Rich Carey is a full-time military service member. He is currently stationed in Seoul, South Korea. At the time that I met him, he was stationed in Germany. And from various posts around the world, he has purchased 20 houses, which provide him with a really solid income. As he says later in this interview, these houses gross ballpark around $15,000 per month. So to everybody who has ever said, oh, I really want to become a rental property investor, but there is nothing cheap in the city that I live in because I live in Manhattan or I live in San Francisco or I live in Seattle. Rich is proof that you don't have to invest where you live. I mean, I get that it's scary to invest out of state, but this guy invests out of country. So let's talk to Rich right now to learn about how he's done this, how he has built a portfolio of 20 rental properties as a military service member who's working full-time in a very important job that is uh, based in foreign countries where even basic things like making a phone call, you know, he's in a totally different time zone. So how has he done this? 
And what advice would he give to anybody else who wants to follow along that path? Let's find out right now. Here's Rich Carey. Hey, Rich. Hey, Paula. How you doing? I'm excellent. How are you? I'm doing great. It's a little bit early where I am, but I'm surviving. So tell everyone where you are at this moment. I'm in the military, and so obviously that has me living in all these different places in the world. And currently, I'm working in Seoul, South Korea. Nice. Before this, when you and I met, you were in Germany, yeah? Or you were based in Germany. We met in Ecuador while you were in Germany. Exactly, yeah. And so uh, I came to this FinCon conference that uh, I think we've both been at. I've been at twice now. I came from Germany one year and then uh, Korea the next. So, Rich, you know, I want this to be a conversation about financial independence. I'm going to cut to the chase here. You're about to retire. How old are you? So I'm 43 years old. 43. And you're going to retire in two years? Yes. Walk us through your story. Who was 18-year-old Rich? And how did he get to where he is today? Okay, so when I was 18 years old, I think when I was in college, I had a bunch of crazy ideas of different careers that I wanted to pursue and a kind of a lot of, of different things going on in my life. When I was in college, I had this idea of being a doctor, and that's kind of something I went through. When I was in college, I worked in an emergency room at a children's hospital. While I was doing that job, it was a teaching hospital. I kind of came to realize that being a a doctor, seeing what the doctors were going through and kind of realizing how much schooling was involved, you know, maybe that wasn't going to be for me. And I had a friend who had given up on pre-med. He went into ROTC, which is like a program where you, where you can join the military from. And he told me, like, I'm going to be a pilot. You know, I left this whole thing about becoming a doctor and now I'm going to become a pilot in the Air Force. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, can I do that? And so I'll make like a, lo- a very long story short, I, I ended up going into this ROTC program where, where I can become, uh, you know, go into the Air Force as well. I actually ended up getting what's called a, a pilot slot. I ended up going to pilot training. I ended up for a short time, you know, in the, the pilot trainer. And uh, while I was flying around, I ended up flying with a really bad cold. And I actually ended up blowing my eardrum out. So um, I ended up having to leave pilot training and looking for a new career field. So anyway, I ended up in a different career in the military, the the one that I'm in now, which is a a law enforcement uh, type career. And that's what I've been doing the last 18 years. In that time frame, I've lived all over the world. I lived in Japan for five years. I lived in Germany for three years. I lived in Guam for two years. I've always wanted to invest in real estate. and it was really hard to do at first because I was in Guam, which is this tiny little island in the middle of nowhere and for my first assignment. And I didn't want to buy there because there were so many typhoons and uh, earthquakes there. In fact, my first apartment in, in uh, Guam actually was destroyed by a typhoon. So I'm actually uh, glad that I didn't buy anything there. Hmm. When I got to my second assignment in the military, which was Washington, D.C., I bought a house immediately, and that's kind of what started my, I'd say, my career, my passion with real estate. How did you have the money to buy that first house? Was that your primary residence at the time? Yeah, so it was my primary residence, Mm -hmm. and my wife was working a little bit at the time. Uh, She was working when we were in D.C. Now, of course, I had the normal salary for a a second lieutenant and a first lieutenant in the military. At this point in our careers, and this is like in in 2000, 2001, Mm -hmm. I wasn't doing anything intentional. 
I wasn't following a certain blog or I don't think there was blogs back then. I wasn't following a book or anything, but I was being very frugal with my money and we were saving and we were trying to invest well. But at the time I had enough money for a 10% down payment. We financed the other 10% at a slightly higher rate. I think it was a 7% rate. You could finance the other 10% of that total 20% down payment for 7%. And then our loan on the house was uh, at 5.5%, which at the time I thought was super, super low. And we bought that townhouse for $280,000 in 2003. And I actually thought that that was an absurdly high price and it was probably going to be the biggest mistake of my life. (laughs) I mean, I was, I didn't sleep for weeks and I thought for sure that, you know, it would never go up in price again. I turned out being very wrong about that. Uh, Two years later, you know, it was already worth four hundred thousand, and and I had realized, like, wow, this this real estate thing's crazy. <laughs> and so, what happened next? You found yourself in Alabama, of all places. Yeah, well, there's a big jump between there and Alabama. Got the real estate bug in D.C. Before I moved away, I tried to buy a second house, but the prices are rising too fast, and I kind of chickened out on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I won't say chickened out, but just realized um, maybe it won't be smart to end up paying so much more just a year or two years later. Mm-hmm. And then uh, later in my career, uh, it was about, I think, 2013, I ended up moving to Alabama. Mm-hmm. At this point, I'd been renting out my townhouse in uh, D.C. for several years, I think 10 years. And while it was a decent rental, it didn't actually provide a very good return on investment because it's a, a high cost of living area. Mm-hmm. So when I got there, I kind of realized very quickly from you know meeting another military member there that I could buy houses here, probably with cash, because they were much cheaper than D.C., mm-hmm. uh, rent them out, and my return on investment would be much, much, much higher than what I was making in D.C., and that got me very excited. And so that's kind of, that's kind of what I've been doing since 2013 as I've I've kind of capitalized on that. Mm. So since 2013, you've been buying houses in Montgomery, Alabama, and you're now up to 20 houses. I'm up to 20 houses, yes. And kind of what's been unique about what I've done in Montgomery, Alabama is these 20 houses are, um, they're all paid off. When you say paid off, did you have a loan on them initially or did you buy them outright in cash? I bought them outright in cash, Mm. one by one. But I have to sort of quantify that. So I ended up, I lived in Montgomery, Alabama for 10 months for a military assignment. And in that time, I bought six houses. Now, these houses ranged in price from 30000 to 45000 mm-hmm. And this was in 2013? Yeah, which is a very affordable house. Yeah. As we talked about earlier, um, I was a very frugal person. Me and my wife were. We were savers. We were investors. We always put lots and lots of money aside. We didn't take fancy vacations. We didn't buy new cars. We kind of just like had this cash saved up. Another thing that we'd done earlier in our career is I had paid off that townhouse in uh, Washington, D.C. So that was also providing not just was it paid off, but it was providing an income to us. You know, so the income, the rent that was coming in was money that I was just this cash that I was just throwing into the the bank every month and and investing. Mm. So that allowed me to buy those six houses uh, while I was there. Right. Well, yeah. So six houses at, say, an average price point of about 40000 per house, that's $240,000, which right. on one hand, it sounds like a lot. But on the other hand, when you frame it into the context of 
The year was 2013, so you were, what, 15 years deep into your career already mm-hmm. with a history of living below your means and saving and having a, a fully re- paid off rental property already. When you frame right. it in that context, 240000 is attainable. It is, yeah. And we did it. I mean, uh, my wife really only worked for the first maybe just a year or two at the beginning of my military career. And then really she was unable to because of the places that we lived. So we really had to live below our means and try to put as much money as away as we could, you know, because we had this goal of paying off the loan quickly and we pay I mean, the uh, mortgage quickly and we paid it off in about six years. Mm. So what we did after we paid those, we bought those six houses. Now these six houses are giving us rental income. And so is this property in DC Mm-hmm. We sold that property in Washington, D.C. because it wasn't making as much money each month for us in cash flow, you know, as a percentage as the ones in uh, Montgomery, Alabama were. We took that cash from that, 400000 One house in D.C. buys 10 houses in Montgomery, Alabama. Mm. So, you know, that gets me from 6 to 16. And then sort of the what I like to what I think of as snowball cash flow from those 16 you know, I've gone from that to 20 in a relatively short amount of time. Mm. And you've done all of this while based in in other countries. You've done all of this from Germany and, and South Korea. Yep. I've done a, a majority of that work while in Germany. You know, after leaving Montgomery, I was in Germany for three years. I sort of like set up systems with my real estate agent that I had work, been working with while I was there in Montgomery and my management company. And the contractors that I had been working closely with, I had set up sort of a system where once I was in Germany, I could still buy houses and utilize all their services from afar to uh, keep adding, you know, buy a house, get it, get it remodeled, get it rent, rent ready, get movers moved in, hand it over to the management company and just add it to my portfolio and I was doing this all from afar, which is it's a problem that a lot of real estate investors have. Everybody's kind of like, I live far away from, you know, from a place that's affordable. What do I do? So that I, I kind of had to solve that problem uh, myself because I'm in the military. Yeah. And so I'm just going to tell a quick story here. So last year, Emma Patti, who was a guest on episode 66 of this podcast, she and I went to Alabama for three days, really to try to figure out what part of Alabama we wanted to invest in. And we had narrowed it down to either Birmingham or Montgomery. And the the only reason we were considering Montgomery, Rich, was because of you. Right. And it's because you and I have, we've known each other for several years. We've talked extensively about real estate. And it was hearing your story uh, that made me think, you know, I should go check out Montgomery. So Emma and I went and we went to check out Montgomery. And, and Rich, I'd emailed you to say, hey, we're going there. And you wrote me back and you were like, cool, I just bought a house. I haven't seen it yet. Can you drive by the outside and let me know if it looks okay? (laughs) (laughs) No, that's true. Um, I haven't been back once since uh, 2014. That's just like the way things are. I mean, I kind of think that's just the future of real estate, at least for a Mm -hmm. lot of people. It is for me. Mm -hmm. There's Skype. There's videos. There's pictures. There's people that I trust and gotten to know and trust and, and have a, a working relationship with, I don't really need to see these things with my own eyes. I just need to know that I'm making money each month and know that I have renters in there and know that problems are being handled. I have had to deal with 
challenges and I've, I have had to have, you know, tough talks with real estate agent or tough talks with management company or get rid of contractors. But, uh, you know, it's been working. Right. Wow. So I've seen more of your houses than you have, I guess. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> well, you'll be happy to know that at least from the outside, they all look great. Great. Thank you. <laughs> so real estate is the how. Right. But the underlying why is, I'm assuming, a commitment to financial independence because you're, you know, you're balancing this not only with a full-time military career, but also, you know, you're making phone calls and sending emails from a drastically different time zone. Right. You know, as mm -hmm. just as you're doing this interview from an uncomfortably different time zone. Yeah. Uh, it's 6 a.m. where you are right now. So in order to to have the motivation to do that, mm -hmm. you had to have a compelling why. Was it always financial independence or what was the thing that got you up at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. to send emails before you went in for military duty? I was just buying real estate and knowing that I needed to do something to, I think, maybe feel more secure. I, I always had this idea that what if I don't make it to a 20-year retirement in the military? Like, what if they kick me out before I get to 20 years? You know, the military does that sometimes where they'll kind of be like, well, we've got too many officers or too many, you know, soldiers. Let's get rid of some. <laughs> and then they don't have to pay them these expensive retirements. And so you always have that, that kind of fear, like, well, what if I don't get that? that 20 year retirement that everybody else gets, I better have something lined up to sort of help. And also almost everybody, I mean, almost everybody, it's probably like 98% in the military, when they get that 20 year retirement, they go back to work, like the following week in a similar job, sometimes the same job, instead of a uniform, you're wearing a suit. And you just go back to work and you just keep working because who retires at 42 or who retires at 38, you know, you know, you, you keep working, you've got kids in school and you have cars and you have loans and you still want to take vacations and you still want to travel and you still want to do things. And most people aren't set up to retire at that point. I think I just had this idea early on, like I want to actually be able to retire at the 20 year point. I just had that idea in my head. I didn't really see anybody else doing it, but I had that idea. And then about, it's probably been more than two years now, maybe about two and a half years ago, while Googling random stuff on the web, just kind of surfing around and reading about finance articles. I ran across Jim Collins' blog, the JL Collins NH blog, the, you know, the, the author of uh, The Simple Path to Wealth. Mm -hmm. And he, he talks about FU money, right? Mm hmm FU money and financial independence as sort of a movement and like a not just his blog, but like there's other people that are writing about this and there's a community and that there's there's like like-minded people that are all doing this together. And I was like, whoa, like what is all of this? Who are these people? And then my first thought was, is are there other blogs like this? Are there other people like this? Come to discover there's, you know, there's like Mr. Money Mustache, and there's like, you know, there's Facebook groups and Choose FI. There's like this big community of people. I guess you could say they're they're like me, you know. They want to they want to live frugally and save and invest and retire early and have the freedom to pursue uh, the things that are important to them. And they don't want to be married to a salary job for the rest of their life. And I think you you also sort of understand from being in this world, if you 
unnecessarily take out loans and unnecessarily overspend and, you know, live in a big house that you don't need and buy fancy cars that you don't need and expensive furniture that you don't need, you unnecessarily add maybe decades of work onto your life unnecessarily. And I realized this by, I mean, I knew this kind of personally, but I'd never seen it written down in a blog and I'd never seen a community of people like this before. And so that really shocked me. And then I ran across your blog, Paula, which has kind of the same, kind of a, from my perspective, you were like a real estate blog, but also a blog that talked about, you know, you can afford anything, but you can't afford everything. It's kind of the same, the same concept of you've got to pick what's important to you. You can't spend on everything you want and still retire early. You can't live in a big mansion and drive a Ferrari and, and still retire in 10 years. And so that really hit home with me. When I saw your blog, I was kind of like, oh, she's also blogging about what she's doing with real estate. And that actually uh, inspired me to um, start a blog about what I was doing with, with real estate. So I've done that as well. Let's dive deeper into the numbers, if you don't mind. Sure. Because, I mean, I don't, I don't know how open you are. I, I don't want to push in terms of talking about numbers, but I know there are a lot of people who are listening who are interested in trying to re- reverse engineer what you've done to figure out what that would look like for them. Okay. Again, quickly, just doing back of the envelope math here. You've got 20 properties. We'll assume that at the time of purchase, they were averaging maybe $40,000 per property. Yeah. That would put us at $800,000 in terms of the amount of cash that you would need in order to own 20 properties free and clear. Right. And what strikes me when when I think about that number is that there are a lot of people who will save as they're pursuing financial independence. Over the years, they may end up accumulating $800,000 in index funds. Right. But having $800,000 worth of free and clear high cap rate real estate is different than having $800,000 in index funds. Right, yeah. Can you explain why? I mean, I, I know what I would say, but I want to hear the way that you would frame it. Yeah. I've heard a lot of people talk about this 4% rule. And this is kind of a, I want to say it's definitely a fire thing, you know, financial independence, retire early. It's a topic that is talked about a lot. And it's, there's something called the Trinity study, which did this study that if you, if you had a nest egg of like a million dollars and it was in an index fund like the S&P 500 and it was just sitting there and you had it at retirement, if you were to withdraw 4% a year, that could conceivably last you the rest of your life. And then there's caveats with that, but it should last you the rest of your life with a very high likelihood. And mm-hmm. then I think you even, I think, I think you've done a podcast maybe somewhat recently where you maybe went into detail on this, if I remember right. I did, yes. I interviewed Dr. Wade Fow, who was a professor of retirement income at uh, the College of Financial Planning. Right. Um, and so we, we had a lengthy discussion about the nuances of the 4% rule of thumb. Okay. So I guess if I have 20 properties, I'm going to re-cage this for my simple mind. If I have 20 properties and then they're worth 50000 each, mm-hmm. would that That's be a million? million? Let's do that mm-hmm. for, my, for my simple, okay. very simple math in my head. Sure. 20 properties, 50000 each. You've got $1 million worth of property. Yeah. Okay. So that's maybe what I've put into them. And I think a good thing about mm-hmm. that is I've bought them all at a 20 to 30% discount. So they're probably worth more. You know, they're probably worth $1.3, $1.4 So we can, mm-hmm. we can sort of make that a assumption. Um, 
these properties, you've probably talked about this before, but I'll go over the 1% rule again, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to buy a property unless it's going to pass the 1% rule. And this is a problem that I would have had had I known. This is a problem with the property that I bought in DC. I bought a property for $280,000. And if it was going to pass the 1% rule, it would have rented for 2800 a month. And then I would have known that it was going to make a decent return on investment. It did mm-hmm. not rent for that much. So I'm um, just going to do a quick time out here for listeners who aren't familiar with the 1% rule of thumb. This is a rule of thumb that states that when you are analyzing rental properties, your first pass at whether or not a property merits further consideration is the question, does this property collect gross monthly rent of at least 1% of its purchase price? So in other words, for every $100,000 worth of house, does it rent for at least 1000 per month? Oh, thanks, Paula. Yeah, I kind of dived into that too quick, so that, that will help people kind of know where I'm going. So $280,000 for the, the house in D.C., it's not passing the 1% rule unless it's renting for 2800 a month. It didn't. It rented for 2000 a month. So it really wasn't making that much money. I didn't know that rule at the time. I just I bought a house, lived in it, moved away and rented it out. A lot of people mm-hmm. do that. That actually isn't a smart way to impro- approach real estate and you end up you know, not really making much money or losing money when you do that. So right. when I got to Montgomery, Alabama, what I realized was that the houses there were definitely passing the 1% rule and in some cases more like the 2% rule. So mm-hmm. I'll give my the second house I bought as an, ex- as an example because it was moving ready. I bought it for $45,000 and it was moving ready. Like I didn't even have to vacuum. But for ease sake, we'll say it was going to rent for nine, 900 a month. Well, that means mm-hmm. that it's not only passing the 1% rule, but you know, you could say that's about the 2% rule because if it rented for 450 a month, it would have been passing the 1% rule. So that just mm-hmm. means that it's making, potentially it's going to make plenty of money and it would be a, a good house to buy. My point is the houses in Montgomery, Alabama were making good ROI. So going back to the 4% rule, for index funds, if you have a million dollars and you can withdraw, help me out, Paula, is it 40000 mm-hmm. a year that you can withdraw? Yeah. So you can withdraw $40,000 a year and, and like live on that if that's enough money for you. I think a lot of people listening might kind of be like, I don't know. I don't know if $40,000 is enough for me. That's probably how I feel. $40,000 mm-hmm. isn't quite enough for me to want to retire from the military and then just uh, feel like I'm comfortable. With the real estate that I have, let's say that I have real estate in the amount of a million dollars, which is close to what I have, because of the 1% rule or the fact that I'm doing better than the 1% rule, and I believe that a lot of people could do just as good as, as I'm doing, just finding the right locations and, and you know learning how to do real estate correctly, because of what I'm doing in real estate, because I'm using cash flow instead of using the 4% rule of index funds, I would argue that I can live off what I would call the 8% rule, which is basically... I'm making an 8% ROI, at least, you know, it's, it's probably 10, but it's real estate varies a lot. Uh, there are good months and bad months. It's at least eight consistently over each year. So I'm going to get at least 80,000 a year from that million dollars. And can I retire on 80,000 a year? I certainly can. So I guess the, the point that I think you're bringing up earlier that I, that I wanted to kind of share with everybody is. I can do a lot better than the 4% rule with index funds by using cash flow from real estate twice as good as fact. I could, I could either retire twice as early or I can make twice as much money. Take your pick. Mm. 
And just to walk through the math of this for anybody who's listening, who's like, wait a minute, there are lots of numbers going on. I'm yeah. not quite sure. Right. So I'm just going to walk through an example. And Rich, uh, correct me if you think that I'm off the mark. But sure. let's say you have $1 million worth of real estate, free and clear, which is approximately what you have. Mm-hmm. At the 1% rule of thumb, your gross monthly rent from that would be $10,000 per month. Mm-hmm. But you're doing a little bit better than the 1% rule of thumb. Let's say you're right. doing on an aggregate average across all of your properties. Let's say you're doing uh, 1.5%. So what that means right. is that for a million dollars worth of equity, you are collecting $15,000 per month gross. And that's very, and that's very close to the truth. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. All right. So every month you are grossing about $15,000. Now let's just say roughly speaking, that half of that is going to go to all of the operating overhead, the property management, the maintenance, the repairs, et cetera, vacancies, all of that. And then the other half of that is yours to keep. Mm-hmm. If you keep about half of that, then that's seven or $8,000 per month of free right. and clear net cash flow after expenses. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at that seven or $8,000 per month, that's significantly more, about double what you would be getting if you were putting, if you had that same million dollars in index funds. That's exactly right. I mean, there's other things to look at too. And there are things that I don't want to depend on them and bank on them, but certain people over certain periods of time are also going to make a lot of money off of the appreciation on on that real estate. You know, that, Mm -hmm. that real estate could go up in value and that's kind of another bonus too. It could go up a lot in value and that can be very helpful as well. One thing that I've done in my properties that is different than what a lot of other people have done is I've paid them all off. That's not necessarily mm-hmm. something you have to do. For me, it brings peace of mind. You know, I, I can survive a large economic downturn, like another, if, if there was another huge housing bust and there was a problem with vacancies or rents in my area, I'd be able to survive that. My houses are all paid off. I don't even have any loans to pay every month. I don't have mortgages to worry about. But for those people that have mortgages and have set it up to where they have enough cash flow, it can still work. It's just sort of what your risk tolerance is there. I've just gone to, maybe for real estate investors, I've gone to an extreme and paid off all of my properties. But I think having the goal of having them all paid off by the time you actually want to retire can be a pretty good strategy. Uh, at least that's my, my feeling on it. So I agree with you. I tend to be of the school of thought that number one, when you're analyzing a property, you should always analyze it from the point of view of a person who owns it in cash, Mm -hmm. i.e. you should never use financing to justify a mediocre deal or depend on leverage to make a bad deal look good. Um, But there are a lot of real estate investors who disagree with us. And Rich, I think part of the reason that you and I have connected so well is because we do occupy the same kind of rare school of thought when it comes to leverage in real estate investing. Mm-hmm. Another thing that's kind of tricky about this, I'm giving you guys the, this this math about how it works with my 20 houses, and, and Paula, you ex- explained it extremely well. And so it compares to the 4%, uh, 4% rule to the maybe the 8% rule. Kind of easy to see how, in my case, real estate is getting me to where I want to be much faster, or or at least with more money. I mean, you can do it with loans, but if you still have, if I have 20 houses and they all have 30-year loans on them, you know, if, if all my houses right now had loans on them, I wouldn't have the cash flow to do this. You know, mm-hmm. there would be a lot less cash flow. 
I probably have to have 80 or 100 houses, you know, at this location mm-hmm. to come up with that cash flow, or I'd have to have some of them paid off. You know, I'd have to scale a lot higher numbers-wise with mortgages to make it work, I guess is my point. And that right. can be more complicated and that can also be more risky, but there's varying levels of risk, you know. Um, you know, maybe half your stuff's paid off or a third of it or or you have a, a certain level of half of your portfolio paid off or make sure that you have enough equity in each property. There's a lot of different ways to look at it, but my simple mind, I just like having them all paid off. We'll come back to the show in just a second, but first. All right. So what are some of the next really big goals that you're saving for? Maybe you're saving for a down payment on a home. Maybe you're saving to buy your next car in cash or to at least make a pretty big down payment on your next car. Maybe you're saving for a kid's college fund or for your own college fund. Well, there's an app called Monarch that makes it easy to help you reach your financial goals. In fact, the Wall Street Journal named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com Paula. Monarch has a very simple, intuitive design. They have loads of built-in features that help you collaborate with your spouse or partner, with your financial advisor. You, know, you can invite them to your account at no extra cost. They'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. You can customize it to look exactly like you want it to look like. You can customize the types of notifications that you get. You know, I've set mine up so that I only see the big ticket stuff. I personally don't want to see the little things. I just want to see big ticket items. So I've set up my notifications accordingly, but you can do it however you prefer. You can change the layout of your dashboard. You can make it your own. And Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Paula. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash Paula for your extended 30-day free trial. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. Are you a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. 10 seconds on the clock. How many things can you name that are always growing? Like your hair, your net worth, I hope. Your income, your investment portfolio. Again, I hope, I hope. Hey, how about the revenue in the business that you run on Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, whether you just started or whether you've been in business for 10 years, whether you're selling accounting textbooks or windshield wiper repair kits, and whether you're selling in person or online. If you're online, 
know that Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can leverage AI with Shopify Magic, an AI-powered all-star. Now, what I like about Shopify is that it's there for you whether you are just beginning or whether you are doing your first million in revenue, your first dollar to your first million plus. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. They have award-winning help. And businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash paula, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash paula now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash paula. So Rich, as I listen to your story about how you accumulated this impressive real estate portfolio... There are three points within the narrative that strike me. Number one is during those 10 months that you lived in Montgomery, Alabama, when you bought six houses over the course of 10 months. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, you needed about $240,000 in cash. So that's kind of like point one of the narrative where I still have some questions there about where that 240000 came from. And mm-hmm. we'll table that for a second because I also want to talk about the other two points. So then the second point in your narrative is going from house number six through house number 16. Yeah. And as you explained, you did that by selling the property in Washington, D.C., which you owned free and clear. Mm-hmm. That freed up about $400,000. Mm-hmm. And then that you use that 400000 to buy the next 10 houses. Mm-hmm. So that totally makes sense. I actually have no questions about that. Mm-hmm. And then the third point in the narrative is then going from house number 16 to house number 20. And that's where we get into the magic of compounding houses. Right. So I think point number two is taken care of, but let's talk more about point number one and point number three, the the beginning and the end, the how you got started and the magic of compounding houses that it created from there. Okay. Your first question is kind of like, how is it that I had enough money to buy those six houses in the first place? Yeah. How did you go from zero to six? Yeah. Or I guess technically one to six since you had that one in DC, but in terms of your Alabama portfolio, how did you go from zero to six? I think, and this is something that I kind of write a lot about on my blog and some people may, might find it boring and some will find it fascinating. But one of the things that we've always done is just find all these different ways to not spend money, right? And find all these different ways to put money in the bank. And whenever we put money in the bank, we always threw it in a, like an S&P 500 index fund. It was just our way of, of investing money. And that's what we've been doing since like 1999. And once we paid off our primary residence, we paid that off 2009, 2010. Once that was paid off, then we just started throwing money like into investment accounts to be used for investing in real estate later on. So extremely frugal living, you know, not taking fancy vacations, not buying cars, not buying expensive furniture, and just putting money away. Another thing we did that was kind of interesting, and this is just an example. When I lived in Monterey, California, the military gives us a certain amount of money based on our zip code or the zip code of where your base is to live each month for rent. And they were going to give us 2300 to live in, in Monterey. Well, you know, we ended up finding an apartment for 1300 and that's where we lived for three years. So do the math. We saved a thousand mm-hmm. a month for three years and that's, mm-hmm. that's $36,000. 
that's just an example of kind of a way that we came up with a chunk of change. By the way, $36,000 was more than enough money for my first house in uh, Montgomery. My first house was $30,000. Another thing that we did on top of this frugal living and just putting money away was I had a kind of a friend slash real estate agent slash business partner, ended up becoming a business partner, who lived near me in Washington, D.C., and he was kind of the person that was, when I was looking for a, another investment property in D.C., he was my real estate agent. And what we ended up doing together when I was in Japan was we ended up flipping houses together. He was the brains behind the deal. He knew how to flip houses. He knew everything about the construction and the remodeling. And he had all the contractors and all that. And he himself was a real estate agent. But he had so many deals going on with other people all his money was tied up. So I was the financing behind the deal. I was using traditional financing to buy houses in our neighborhood, the same neighborhood where our townhouse was. I was buying houses that were in real bad shape and were about to be foreclosed on. I would buy those houses before they went on the market because he knew everybody in the neighborhood. And then we would flip that house and, and sell them and I was making money this way that I was just putting away, you know, towards uh, buying real estate in the future. I did that about eight times uh, over the course of two or three years. And even though I made good money doing that, it really, because I wasn't there and I wasn't able to watch him do it and participate in it, it started to make me nervous because we kept doing bigger and bigger deals. And um, ultimately, I just kind of decided like, I think that I'm the kind of person that enjoys what passive real estate is. And that's not passive real estate. You just have to keep buying and selling and buying and selling. And I was worried that I was going to lose money someday. So the combination of that, of frugal living, finding lots of ways to put money away, and the flipping houses is what got me that money. Hmm. So I guess what I'm hearing you say is that combination of frugal living and having a side hustle. Yep, side hustle, exactly. Your side hustle happened to be in the real estate business, but a side hustle is a side hustle. Anything that makes you money makes you money. Exactly. Yep. And then I think you had, you sort of, there was that third question, right? Which was the, what did you call it again? The magic of compounding houses. Yes. And I've never heard that term before, (laughs) but, but I've certainly, I've definitely described it as the snowball effect when it comes to cash flow from houses. If you own six houses with mortgages, and I think some of your houses, Paula, make pretty good cash flow even with mortgages, mm-hmm. that's not always the case. When you have mortgages, the cash flow isn't as high. When your mortgage is gone, things really change a lot and kind of that 50% rule again, right? But the money that comes in, you've got to pay your expenses and expenses are about 50% of rent, but everything else is all yours and you get to keep that. And it, you know, it's kind of like it all goes in your pocket and it makes the math a lot simpler, but it also makes how fast money accumulates for you happen a lot faster. And so, uh, kind of did the math. Like I had six houses paid off and then I moved away and it was like, I'm doing all the math in my head and I'm like, okay, it's going to be 18 months until the cash flow from these six houses will be enough to buy a seventh house. I'm like, okay, you know. But I kicked in my own money as well, and so I was able to buy in a quicker amount of time than 18 months. But then once I had 10 houses, the cash flow buys a house quicker than 18 months. It's more like you know, uh, 12 months. 
and this is off the top of my head, so I don't know if it's exactly right, but it gets faster. Now I have 20 houses. Once you have 20 houses paid off, the income from those 20 houses will buy a 21st house in five or six months. I mean, that's like really fast. Now I'm buying two houses, you know, I'm buying two houses a year just from the cash flow from the houses that already exist. And mm-hmm. so that is the magic of compounding houses, right? Right. Kind of like when you talk about the magic of compound interest in the same sense that that's, a, you know, sort of you get this exponential growth at a certain point. I feel like I'm hitting that exponential growth right now where I can leave it alone and let it grow on its own and do very well. And I didn't get to talk about this. We, we didn't get into this yet. When I retire, I have, of course, this uh, passive income from real estate that I'm talking about. But I also have my traditional military retirement that I'm going to have as well. It'll be about after taxes, if I pay taxes. And not every state taxes a military retirement. Some taxes give a break on that. Most states do. And I think after tax, my military retirement will be about 3400 a month. So I'll have that as well as my uh, income from my rental properties. So if I live frugally or find some other side hustle, right, do something with my blog or find some other way to make money, I could just leave that real estate portfolio to keep growing like I described, which is what I hope I can do. Right, right. And as it keeps growing, your houses can start buying their own houses. That's what they're doing. Yeah. If you're netting 7000 a month from your rental properties, that's 84000 mm-hmm. a year. Right. That's enough for your portfolio of properties to buy between one to two houses per year, just yes. purely off the cash flow that they're producing. Right. Mm-hmm. So it works out pretty well. My portfolio is buying its own properties. And as properties get added, the amount of time keeps shortening. You know, it goes from every year and a half I get a house to every year I get a house to every seven months I get a house to every five months there's enough income to buy a house. And that just keeps shortening. I mean, conceivably, you know, at a certain amount in time in the future, conceivably there'd be enough income to buy a house every month, right? That's if I just, if I kept doing everything the same in this market. Now, maybe something would change in the future. Maybe I go to a different market. But that's if you just ran the numbers into the future. We'll come back to this episode after this word from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search. It's to match. And you can do that with Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform that has over 350 million global monthly visitors. It allows you to schedule, screen, and message so that you can connect with candidates faster. And beyond just hiring faster, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, which means Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Whenever I hire somebody inside of Afford Anything, I'm doing so because we are already overloaded with work. We have way too much on our plates, and so we need to hire so that somebody can start taking some of that stuff off of our plates. But hiring itself is added workload on top of already busy workload. So it's great to have a platform like Indeed that helps you hire faster and find higher quality matches. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Paula. Just go to Indeed.com slash Paula right now and support our show by saying, 
you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Paula. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Going back to the discussion about how you got the initial capital, the combination of frugality and a side hustle. Yeah. Between frugality plus the side hustle that you had, which of the two would you say was more important or were they equally important? Well, (laughs) to me, clearly the frugality was a lot more uh, important. If people look at me today and they're like, wow, this guy has 20 houses and they're all paid off. Like he's well off. He's doing awesome. He's rich. Like that's not the point. The real estate isn't what got me to where I am. It was the frugality. It was the the saving and investing and and the lifestyle that, you know, some people would probably argue it was kind of a, I don't know if they'd say it was, it, it didn't seem boring to me. I, I, I lived very well during that time, but that's what got me here. As far as the side hustle goes, what I would say about that is it earned me a decent amount of income, but that income was, I don't want to say it was luck, but I mean, when you flip houses, things don't always necessarily go your way. You know, you can buy a house and fix it up and then try to sell it and then have the deal fall through because of financing. And then the second buyer comes in and and it falls through again. And then you end up selling it and you break even or you lose money. So, I mean, the being frugal and having money in the bank, like that's a sure thing. But from my perspective, the flipping of houses that's a way of making money, but it's not a sure thing. I like the security of a sure thing. It's interesting that you say that this was brought about by frugality first and foremost rather than real estate. Because mm-hmm. um, what comes to mind is that what that means is that real estate is the result, not yeah. the cause. Yes. Yeah. I think that's an important distinction to make for me because uh, a lot of people are coming to me for advice on how to invest in real estate And when they come to me, it's usually like, I want to do what you're doing, so help me. But like, here's my situation. I've got like a sports car, (laughs) and I've already got a house that's losing a lot of money, and I'm in a lot of debt, but I'm hoping I can buy more houses and get myself out of debt, right? Uh But the problem is, there are a lot of other, you could say, websites and books And even if you just kind of Google real estate and, you know, how to make money, there are a lot of people who would say, well, you can, you you can sort of pull yourself out of debt and fix your financial life through aggressive real estate investing, you know, like borrowing money you don't have and using other people's money and controlling a lot of real estate and leveraging appreciation. And that's not what I'm preaching. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a sure thing. I think that's, that works for some people. And in the cases that it works really well, I would argue that there's a lot of luck involved and timing involved. And I think that the people that it works for might not necessarily realize that. And that's kind of dangerous. And I feel like that my approach to real estate has been methodical and conservative. I mean, it's been hard work and I've been smart about it and and sort of like, you know, I've tried different things and, and figured things out until I found something that worked for me, but I didn't take big risks with my money or with my grandmother's money, you know, or with friends' money or with, uh, or borrowing money that I didn't have. I earned the money first. I put myself in a, in a safe financial position first, and then I went into real estate, which is a 
I think a lot different than, than it's preached to many other people. Yeah. And I think that's a very good point. And that's why I don't get along with most people who talk about real estate. Because I, I visited those websites and I've listened to those podcasts and they're a huge turnoff. Right. And we've been on some of those podcasts too. And we've both been criticized for being too conservative. But I, you know, you and I share the same philosophy. We do. Yeah. So I think we could talk about this too, because it's an obvious thing that I think listeners might be thinking about. I mean, I have equity, right, in my homes. By ver <laughs> The equity in my homes is by virtue of the fact that they're all paid off. Right. You have 100% equity. Exactly. Some people will have equity in their homes because maybe they live in Seattle and maybe they bought at the right time, like, you know, four years ago. And it's like, oh my gosh, you know, now I have $500,000 equity in my, in my house in Seattle and everybody's telling me that I could, you know, take out a HELOC or that I could find some way of borrowing this equity and go out and buy more houses. Like, should I do that? Well, people are telling me that too. They're like, Rich, you're crazy. You're sitting on all this money uh, that's sitting in your real estate and it's not doing anything for you. It's not making any money for you. You could be making so much more money and you're crazy to not be taking advantage of that. You could grow this 20 houses into 100 houses, right? Especially with the background that you have in real estate. So do it. While the idea is tempting of becoming a real estate guru and all that, it's not who I am. I don't like the idea of using debt for that reason. And also, um, I've seen other people get in trouble with debt. And I've seen, you know, that for every one or two successful people, there are a lot more people that have gotten themselves in trouble. And you don't get to hear about those people on the podcasts. And you don't mm -hmm. get to read about them. They don't have a voice, you know. So, and I don't want to be one of those people. You know, I want to be safe with my money. I want to be smart about it. I want to retire early and retire comfortably. I don't necessarily have to be a multimillionaire. Absolutely. How did your philosophy form? Was it through trial and error or did it just make intuitive common sense? It's strange how it formed because, well, I mean, I think in the case of paying off my mortgage, and this is kind of funny, but, you know, my wife's, she's Asian. She's from Taiwan. She's Chinese. She's the one who was kind of like, let's pay this mortgage off quickly. And I kind of dismissed that. I'm like, well, she doesn't know what she's talking about, you know. I'm like, that's a crazy idea. Of course, we're better off having the small payment every month and using the extra money we have to invest elsewhere. And then, like, I was reading Dave Ramsey's book, Total Money Makeover, and mm -hmm. I saw that in that book, they have all the steps about, like, getting rid of your debt, which I'd already done all of those things. Mm -hmm. I'm like, this is a great book. I love it. But like, I've already, <laughs> I'm already on step eight. This is great. <laughs> but I've already done all these steps. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, so no big deal, but I'm doing great. Like, but then it said like, pay off your mortgage. And that floored me. Mm. Like what? I'm like he's saying pay off your mortgage. And then when I read further, I'm like, oh, but this makes sense. And he talked about how he had been a sort of guru in real estate who had leveraged to the hilt and gotten big and made millions. And then like, a crash happened and he lost it all and went bankrupt. And he's kind of like, I don't ever want to do that again. I don't want this to happen to anybody else. And so he, you know, he's, he's for paying off mortgages. And I bought into that. And so I went to my wife and I'm like, I have this great idea. We should pay off our mortgage. And, she, and she's kind of like, yeah, that's what I told you before. <laughs> you know, so, so we aggressively uh, paid it off. The thing with the, the houses in Montgomery, though, is that I don't know that I would have been against getting loans for them, but because I had the money saved up, because I've been living frugally and I had the cash, 
the first house was um, 30000 I mean, it's kind of cost prohibitive to get a loan for 30000 I think I even looked into getting a loan for 30000 And a lot of banks were kind of like, uh, we don't make loans that small. <laughs> it's just kind of like, well, it's just easier to pay cash. And it's just faster, too. And then another thing I realized, too, and I end up talking about this a lot when people ask me for sort of strategies on buying real estate. There's a lot of strategy when it comes to buying houses cheaper with uh, paying cash. You know, you beat out people who are trying to use mortgages. If there are multiple bids on a house and you bring the cash offer, you get the house cheaper than the person who's willing to pay more, but they want like a month or a month and a half to come up with their loan and to wait for their other house to sell and to wait for like five things to line up perfectly. The sellers like cash buyers, especially when they've already been screwed over in the past by waiting for a loan to come through that fell through and then they had to put it on the market again and it's not a fresh, it's not, you know, it's not fresh on the market anymore and there's less people interested. And then I come along with my cash and roll in. So I just kind of found that, man, cash is just working better and I have the cash, so I'll just keep doing this. And then, I don't know, I just kind of, I kind of realized as people were pushing me to, well, you should, you should try something in another market. You should try multifamily. You should get a HELOC on what you already have and, and grow in other markets. And I was kind of like, that doesn't feel right to me. I don't like this. I love that my properties are paid off. I love the peace of mind that it brings. I love not having a mortgage to worry about, especially because I'm coming up on the 20 year point in my career where I can retire, you know, and, and I won't be getting my income anymore. Just knowing that everything's paid off and that I don't owe any bank anything is amazing peace of mind. And a lot of people will argue that, you know, you'll grow your wealth faster by using leverage to buy houses. Even if that were to be true, like, I don't care. I love the peace of mind of having property paid off. And the certainty that it's paid off, but this is the income that I'm getting every month now. And it can't be put at risk by external pressures in the market or the bottom falling out of real estate again or the employment market in my city, you know, being affected by a base closing or an industry closing or like lots of different things. I'm a lot less at risk because my houses are paid off. And I love that. So that's kind of where my philosophy came from, I guess. I, it's just a, a love for that uh, security and that peace of mind and not loving this idea of, of taking these, these risks and having this need to uh, get rich quick, which I don't, I don't have that need. Final question. For the people who are listening who are thinking – wow, I want to do what you're doing. I live in a place where, you know, I can't buy properties where I live, but I want to buy out-of-state properties or even out-of-country properties. And I want to accumulate a big portfolio of them. What advice would you give to to those people, the people who are listening who have that thought? I I think the first thing I like to say to people is, is like, where are you sitting right now financially? You know, Mm -hmm. set yourself up to invest in real estate from a position of strength. And a lot of people don't like to hear that. So like, mm. I, I'll say that and I'll be like, well, forget this. I'll go talk to somebody else. <laughs> I want someone that's going to tell me that I, that I can invest in real estate right now. But if you're in a lot of debt and you kind of have like some other financial problems, I feel like you should like figure those things out first. You know, I feel like it's not that I'm like a huge Dave Ramsey fan. There's actually a lot of things about him that I, I think are a little strange, but I love his total money makeover as sort of an idea of how to approach getting out of debt. 
you've got to get yourself out of debt. You've got to like pay off your student loans. And if you're in a bad real estate investment already, I kind of feel like you need to figure out how you're going to get out of that. You know, maybe you should sell this property or, or get, get out of it. So think about that first. Maybe you shouldn't invest in real estate this year. Maybe you should have a plan to start investing in real estate in three or four or five years, and you need to make your plan for setting yourself up financially to be ready to invest in real estate. And then, of course, investing in another market. Of course, if you live in San Francisco or you live in Los Angeles or Honolulu, it is very hard to invest in your own market. You can invest in another market. In my case, I lived in Montgomery, Alabama for 10 months, and I got a chance to look around and I got a chance to make connections. It's not mandatory that you do that. I think in my case, I'm going to feel more comfortable if I spend at least a few weeks on the ground and meet property managers, meet real estate agents, drive some neighborhoods and kind of understand the area a little bit. But after that, the trick is you need to find a really good real estate agent that understands investing, that understands what real estate investors need. And that is an agent who uh, doesn't mind doesn't mind making lots and lots of offers on behalf of a real estate investor. And lots of real estate agents aren't willing to do that. You've got to find a real estate agent that is willing to do that for you. And you've got to find a management company that is willing to work with investors and, and is already doing so. And this is, again, it's something that I talk about on my website, but you want to go to a property management company and then ask them, are you working with other investors? Can I talk to these other investors that you're working with as a reference and then talk to those other investors and use that as a way to find out like, will this property management company be able to work with me out of state and, and make this work? And, and do they understand the market? And are they doing well for these other investors as well? In my case, I set it up so that my property management company is able to supervise, like when I buy a house from afar, like from Korea or Germany, when I buy an, a, a new property, they go out and make sure that this property would make a good rental before I buy it. They make sure it's in a good neighborhood. They make sure they like the floor plan. This is the property management company. They make sure they like the floor plan and they make sure it's in a, a good neighborhood and they, and they sort of bless that before I buy it. But another thing that they do is they will supervise the make ready. And in some cases, that might mean a lot of work, like remodeling the kitchen, remodeling the bathroom. I've set up a, a system with them where they charge me a 10% fee on top of you know whatever work is done by the contractor, and they supervise all of that. That's golden for me. That's the trickiest thing about investing from afar, is how do you work with contractors and, and get houses ready when you live in a different country or state? Well, I've worked that out with my property management company, and I, I would suggest that potentially your listeners could think about working something like that out with a real estate agent or a property management company, some type of a similar arrangement to what I've done because it's worked well for me. Well, thank you so much, Rich. Where can people find you if they'd like to know more about you? I have a website. It's called uh, richonmoney.com, R-I-C-H-O-N money, richonmoney.com. And just so I come there, there's a tab on my homepage that says real estate, and then I have a complete guide to real estate investing. I recommend that people uh, that are interested in understanding a lot more about my approach to real estate, just like read that. It's a very kind of like a long document, like a maybe almost like a short book <laughs> that links to a lot of other things on, on my blog. 
But I recommend you go there if you want to get to know me. And we will link to that in the show notes as well. So thank you, Rich. Well, thank you. Rich, thank you so much for coming on today's show. What are some of the key takeaways that we got from this conversation? Well, here are four. Number one, be careful who your teachers are. Rich and I connect as real estate investors because we share a very similar philosophy. Both of us believe in investing in rental properties for the sake of cash flow and cap rate. And we specifically do not believe in investing in rental properties for the sake of market-based appreciation. And we also do not believe in using the cash-on-cash return formula when we're evaluating deals. We don't believe in using leverage to make a mediocre deal look good. That's a very specific type of investment philosophy that makes us unusual in the world of rental property investors. It's, as he and I were discussing during this interview, it's the reason that we don't connect with a lot of other people in the real estate space. Frankly, that at least is in part the reason that I've spent so much time emphasizing that this is not a real estate podcast. Uh, this is why I intro these episodes by saying, hey, you know what? Today's episode is about real estate, but most of our episodes aren't because I'm really trying to differentiate myself from the rest of the real estate investing community because, frankly, I just don't get along with most of those people. I mean, I'm sure they're perfectly nice people, but we just don't share the same fundamental worldview. The majority of people in the real estate guru seminar space, which uh, gives me like the blah as soon as I think about it, the majority of people in that space are just they're obsessed with leverage and obsessed with market based appreciation. And it just I I just don't want to be associated with that crowd. And I'm not Dave Ramsey about it. I think that some leverage is okay. I've got leverage, but. I do think that a lot of teachers in the real estate space overemphasize it. They give it too much credence, and many of them rely on it in order to make a deal make sense. Many of them will say, yeah, if you bought this thing in cash, it wouldn't really be that great. But but if you leverage into it, then you're only putting a little bit of your own cash in the deal, and therefore the returns are better. And I just don't jive with that way of thinking. And so all of that is to say, for lesson number one, be careful who your teachers are. You cannot or should not, I hate the word should, but I'm going to use it here. You should not just blindly say, this person knows about investing. I'm going to follow what they teach. Because if you do so, they may lead you down a very dark path. And this does not just apply to real estate investing. This applies to all types of investing. I mean, in the investing world, there are people who are really into index funds, people who are into options and futures, people who are into day trading, people who are into Bitcoin, people who are into penny stocks. So who are you going to learn from? Who are you going to follow? That's up to you. And it's a choice that you should take very seriously. Two years ago, when I announced that I was going to put out a uh, rental property investment course, I got an email from a guy who said, you know what, I would love to take your course, but how can I convince my girlfriend that we should take yours rather than just find a cheaper one on Udemy and take that one instead? And really, this is my answer to it. Like, what strategy, what philosophy, what approach does that other teacher have? You know the one that I have. Which one do you want to follow? Choose that you don't have to take my course, but choose the course that you take on the basis of that, on the basis of the philosophy that you want to emulate rather than 
the sticker price of the course, because a cheap course can end up being very expensive if it guides you down a different philosophy and down a different road. So that's core takeaway number one. Be careful who your teachers are. Core takeaway number two. If your goal is to achieve financial independence, rental properties can be more effective than index funds with regard to, specifically with regard to that goal. I'm going to get at least 80000 a year from that million dollars. And can I retire on 80000 a year? I certainly can. So I guess the, the point that I think you're bringing up earlier that I, that I wanted to kind of share with everybody is I can do a lot better than the 4% rule with index funds by using cash flow from real estate twice as good as fact. I could, I could either retire twice as early or I can make twice as much money. Take your pick. Now, don't get me wrong. I love index funds. And so does Rich. You heard him say during the interview that he put most of his savings into S&P 500 funds. But that being said, if you are designing an early retirement based on the 4% withdrawal rate, you will have to save more money than you would if you were designing an early retirement based on the cash flow that you can receive from rental properties. And the reason for that is because the total returns on the two assets may be the same, or similar, but uh, rental properties bias those returns in the form of an income stream, um, which is analogous to a dividend, and index funds bias those returns in the form of capital appreciation. So the total returns may be quite similar, but the way in which those returns are expressed is different, and that matters in the context of your goals. If your goal is just to build wealth, then pick your poison. But if your goal specifically is financial independence or early retirement, then biasing your returns in a cash flow centered or dividend centered or income stream centered way makes a lot of sense within that context. So that is core takeaway number two. Rental properties are particularly well suited for the goal of financial independence, early retirement. Core takeaway number three is about the magic of compounding houses. The income from those 20 houses will buy a 21st house in five or six months. I mean, that's like really fast. Now I'm buying two houses. I'm buying two houses a year just from the cash flow from the houses that already exist. And Mm -hmm. so that is the magic of compounding houses, right? This is the concept of the flywheel spinning faster and faster. The more you invest, the more your investments grow and that growth itself begins to grow. This is the concept of momentum. And so if you are a beginner, what I urge you is to not be frustrated or impatient with what seems like very slow progress. Because when you are standing at the beginning of an exponential curve, and you you can see this visually when you look at what an exponential curve looks like, the beginning of it looks flat. And this concept doesn't just apply to investments, it applies to Anything that has exponential growth, if you think about the rate of technological advancement in our society, we've seen greater advancements in the past hundred years than we've seen in the previous millennia before that. And we've seen greater advancements in the last 20 years than we saw in the 40 years prior to that. The lesson here is that growth accelerates. It does so in in technological advancements. It does so in a colony of rabbits. And it does so 
in the compounding gains that your investments make. And that's true both in the traditional stock market as well as in rental properties. Eventually, your flywheel is spinning fast enough that your houses start buying houses. And that is the magic of compounding houses. Your investments are self-propagating. And when that happens, you've really won the game. Finally, core takeaway number four is that, and this is probably the obvious thread that ran through the entire interview, you do not need to live in the same city as your rentals. You can invest in another market. In my case, I lived in Montgomery, Alabama for 10 months, and I got a chance to look around and I got a chance to make connections. It's not mandatory that you do that. I think in my case, I'm going to feel more comfortable if I spend at least a few weeks on the ground and meet property managers, meet real estate agents, drive some neighborhoods, and kind of understand the area a little bit. But after that, build a solid team, build great systems, and run a business. What's great about rental property investing is that it is a hybrid between an investment and a business. When you're buying a share of Coca-Cola stock, you have no control over what the Coca-Cola company is doing. But when you buy a rental property, you have direct control over the people who work for that business. You have direct control over who your real estate agent is, who your property manager is, who your contractors are, the level of repairs and maintenance that you give to a property, the level of preventative maintenance that you do on properties, the criteria that you set for the tenants that you choose, all of those are under your direct control. And that's one of the things that's nice about rental properties is that you, in a very real way, influence the way that this business is run. And yet, it's also a passive investment. You don't need to live in the same city or the same state or, as Rich has proven, even in the same country as your investments. As long as you have a good team in place, the rest works itself out. And if you think about this, in the context of any other business, we all know that this is true. In the context of any other business, you can be the owner of a company or a majority stakeholder in a company without necessarily needing to live in the same space where that company is headquartered. This is true for rental businesses as well. Now, there's one other thing that Rich said that's kind of part of this point. He mentioned that if he had not lived for 10 months in Montgomery, Alabama, then what he would have done was gone there for a couple of weeks. That's very similar to what Emma and I did. We went to Alabama for three days, and the goal of that trip was not to buy any houses. The goal of that trip was purely to answer two questions. Number one, do we want to invest in Alabama? And number two, if so, do we want to invest in either Birmingham or Montgomery? And honestly, if I could turn back time and do it again, I would have considered three cities. I would have considered Huntsville as well. But point being, Emma and I, Emma lives in Portland, I live in Las Vegas, we both flew to Alabama for a couple of days, checked it out, and we were able to answer those two questions. And in that time, we were also able to find a real estate agent that we liked working with. Now, both of us at this moment are tending to a few other priorities before we go ahead and buy our Alabama properties. For example, I'm giving a main stage talk at the World Domination Summit coming up soon, so that's stressing me out. I've got to focus on that. I've got to get this course launched because it's been under construction for two years now. The only reason that we haven't bought anything yet is because we are balancing priorities. You can do anything but not everything. But both of us, Emma and I, still talk about it fairly frequently, and both of us are kind of looking ahead in our calendars to when we want to go back to Birmingham and pick up a couple rental properties there. 
So I suppose if there's a takeaway from that, it's if you're employed full time, be willing to spend your vacation days or your weekends or your your three day or four day weekends taking trips to places that other people might find boring. No offense to Birmingham, but it's not like the number one vacation destination that you might think of. But if you've got a three-day weekend, if you've got a Memorial Day or a Labor Day in front of you, are you going to spend that time on the lakefront or are you going to spend that time flying to a city where you might be interested in buying your first rental property? That decision right there is what delineates people who are serious about this from people who aren't. So those are four takeaways that I got from this conversation. Hey, so you just finished listening to an episode that originally aired in June 2018. My name is Paula Pant. I am recording this from the Austin Convention Center in Austin, Texas. I am the host, co-host and co-MC of a conference that's called FinCon, and it's a big conference for people who create digital media blogs, podcasts, YouTube channels around personal finance. I am currently, I just got out of a panel. I uh, spoke on a panel about cryptocurrency and I just wrapped that panel about 25 minutes ago. And now I am recording this in a little break that I have before uh, in in exactly 35 minutes from now, I need to go report for, uh, to go get mic'd and to introduce the keynotes here. So it's like a Really fun, really busy, really amazing time. Um, So that's what I'm up to right now. If you want to follow along on the fun, I'm posting stories on Instagram, my Insta stories, Instagram at Paula Pant, P-A-U-L-A-P-A-N-T. So you can see some of the the cool stuff that we're doing here. We'll be back next week with, uh, you know, the September sabbatical. We're publishing four episodes themed around F-I-R-N-E, F for financial psychology, I for investing. This week you heard R for real estate. Next week, we're going to be playing an episode themed around that letter E. So if you are not yet subscribed to this podcast, make sure that you hit subscribe in whatever podcast player you're listening to so that you don't miss any of those upcoming episodes as well. So that's three things I've just told you. Number one, affordanything.com slash real estate to register for free for our live streams. Number two, Instagram at Paula Pant, P-A-U-L-A-P-A-N-T. And number three, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast. All right. Thank you so much. I'm glad that you are enjoying this. I hope you're learning something. I hope that you can apply this to your life. And I will catch you in the next episode. Take care. Take care.